mimicry is T-E-K for a white industrialized world. There's something more powerful than humans and more intelligent than humans. And humans can harmonize with that intelligence. And I think that's the promise of biomimicry. Welcome to the Native Seed Pod. I'm your host and pollinator, Melissa Nelson. I'm excited to introduce you to a new special podcast series and partnership as part of our Native Seed Pod Season 4, Knowledge Symbiosis. Can traditional ecological knowledge and biomimicry harmonize? This special series is co-produced in partnership with the Biomimicry Center at Arizona State University, co-directed by Sara El-Sayed and the Learning From Nature podcast. This Knowledge Symbiosis series is co-produced and co-broadcast with Learning From Nature, the biomimicry podcast with Lily Ehrman. You can listen to Learning From Nature and the Native Seed Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome, I am Sara El-Sayed, and we would like to invite you to this new initiative of a podcast series called Knowledge Symbiosis. Can biomimicry and indigenous knowledge systems harmonize? So that's the question that we are asking. And we are a collaboration between several entities. There is the Biomimicry Center at Arizona State University. There is the Indigenous Knowledges Focal Area, of the Global Futures Laboratory. We were funded by the Institute for Humanities Research. And the podcast series will be broadcast over two different podcasts. So one is Native Seed Pod, part of the Culture Conservancy, and the other one is Learning from Nature. Hello, this is Lily here. I am the host of Learning from Nature. And the layout of this series is be a mini series where the three of us will be rotating hosting and we will be inviting two guests per episode to have conversations with us. And there will be a different theme or focus for each episode. This is really exciting because it's a pilot and it's just the start of what we hope to be more meaningful and deep conversations around these topics. And to start us off in a good way, I want to do a land and people acknowledgement. My name is Melissa Nelson. I'm a professor of Indigenous sustainability here at ASU. And we want to acknowledge the 23 tribes of Arizona. And we want you to also think about the native lands that you reside on. Here in ASU, in the Salt River Valley of Phoenix area, we are on the lands of the Akamel Atam and Peeposh peoples, represented by the proud Native nations of the Salt River Maricopa Pima Indian community and the Gila River tribes. And we want to recognize that we are on Native land. We are grateful for the ancestors and all their work keeping this beautiful land so strong and vibrant. 
We acknowledge their contemporary communities for all the work they do for their sovereignty and well-being. And we also acknowledge future generations. May they continue to thrive and be well with water and food and medicine here in this beautiful Sonoran Desert. To honor Indigenous knowledges and biomimicry. We look to the land, the ecosystems, the watersheds, the plant beings, all our relatives. And we wanted to see if we could have some diverse and lively conversations between Indigenous knowledge holders and biomimicry specialists to see if these two knowledge systems, really multiple knowledge systems, can come together in a symbiotic and harmonious way. So welcome to our podcast. Thank you, Melissa, for centering us and bringing us to this place. So I am, as I said, Sarah, and I am the co-director of the Biomimicry Center at ASU. I'm an assistant research professor, and I actually holler from Cairo, Egypt. I've lived there most of my life, and I only moved to Arizona six years ago to start my PhD, where it really started taking me on this journey where I was already entrenched in biomimicry. I had received the master's in biomimicry, where I've learned from all these organisms and their adaptations and how they can be really an inspiration for us to think differently about how we can be better fit on this planet, how humans can look at these 3.8 billion years of adaptations of organisms and find ways that are actually allowing us to be better stewards on this earth. And that's what biomimicry is. But what I started exploring and learning is that actually that is not enough to look at nature and to understand how nature works. There are other teachers, ancient teachers, and where I come from in in Egypt, in North Africa, these teachers are traditional practitioners. My focus was in food systems. And so looking at how Bedouins and other tribal organizations were dealing with the tea desertification, creating their own adaptations of creating systems that survive and thrive, I realized that the Southwest also offered a lot of lessons and that these lessons came from indigenous communities and the wisdom that they had. And so for my own dissertation, I started trying to learn from these two spaces, how biomimicry, nature-inspired design, and how indigenous knowledges can inspire us for a better and more regenerative space. And biomimicry has a lot of examples, and we're going to be talking about them throughout the series. There's examples of how in Zimbabwe, for example, the East Gate infrastructure building was inspired by the termite mounds. But what we're seeing is that it's it's not just looking at nature, but how do humans also do that? And indigenous folks have also been looking at nature in different ways because they don't think of themselves as separate from it. And we're going to be exploring some of these questions. I'm going to stop there and pass it on to Lily. Hi, everyone. Lily Ehrman here. I am a naturalist at heart, biomimic by training and an educator in a very general sense. I teach at the undergraduate level. I help run a nonprofit where we introduce young people to nature in the Denver metro area. And I host a podcast. I'm hoping to get folks engaged in this area that are connected to nature and curious about nature and want to take that a step further. 
And I have been involved in biomimicry for about a decade now. I've been attending Bioneers, which is a conference in California. Um, that's where I first heard about biomimicry, actually, while I was doing my undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. And Bioneers also initially introduced me to this weaving of Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous leaders in the learning from nature and nature connection space. And that immediately resonated with me because it's not just how can we as Western society in academia integrate this methodology, but how do we connect with nature and listen to elders and bring in knowledge that has been around for a long time. And so I'm really excited to be here and explore this space with all of you. Greetings all. I greet you as relatives. My name is Melissa Nelson, and I am so honored to be here with these sisters to start this conversation off. I am a proud member, enrolled citizen of the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians and identify as a mixed race native woman. I have Anishinaabe, Cree, and Métis heritage from my mother and Norwegian from my father. They come from the Turtle Mountains of North Dakota. I've spent most of my life in Northern California and now am happy to have a second home in the beautiful Salt River Valley in Tempe area of Arizona. And I come to the field very similarly, actually, as Lily. I was a part of the Bioneers Conference for, gosh, going on 30 years now, and was a co-producer and co-founder of the Indigenous Forum there and the Indigeneity Program, and early on heard Janine Benyus and Dana Baumeister and these amazing women biologists talking about biomimicry and such a wonderful model, and I love these women in science really transforming the way we think about our relationship to the natural world and modeling our cultural systems and social systems and technologies based on more intelligent design. And so that's something, of course, with my own Native heritage and many other Indigenous peoples have talked about since time immemorial, how we model our calendars and our homes and our houses and our ceremonies and our baskets based on nature's design. And so there's a lot of resonance here with harmonizing with natural systems rather than working against them. And I love that one of biomimicry's tenets is to understand life's operating principles or operating instructions. And one of the most important statements that they have popularized is that nature creates conditions conducive to life. And I really see that the original instructions of indigenous peoples is exactly the same. We are honoring these conditions that are conducive to life, to regenerate life. In my Ojibwe language, we would say, continuous rebirth of good life. And so I think there's philosophical and practical resonance and symbiosis between these systems, even though we know there are also some frictions and potential conflicts and really just some unique differences that we want to investigate here in a very productive, safe, and fun way. So thank you for joining us as we learn to harmonize Indigenous knowledge systems and biomimicry and find ways to create conditions conducive to all of life together. Miigwech, thank you for listening. Miigwech. I love miigwech. That word is so nice. Isn't it great? Yes. <laughs> miigwech. Well, let's thank you in your language, Sara. Shukran. Shukran. Yeah. That's beautiful, too. Yeah.
welcome to two wonderful human beings, Dana Bomeister and Melissa Nelson. I am so excited to have a lovely conversation with the two of you. Melissa and Dana are both incredible scholars, practitioners, women, human beings. And today we're going to have a nice conversation where we start exploring the intersection between the fields of biomimicry and the world of traditional ecological knowledge. And I can't wait to hear your perspectives on these two spaces. And so I think I would like to start with just an introduction, if each one of you uh, can just tell us about yourself, a little bit about your work, uh, and maybe we can start first with Melissa Nelson. Well, good afternoon, everybody. It's so great to be here with you, Dana and Sara. Uh, my name is Melissa Nelson. I am a ecologist, indigenous biologist, a human being, and a professor of sustainability at ASU, Arizona State University. For 30 years, I've been involved with the indigenous rights movement and environmental justice movements through many nonprofits, including the Cultural Conservancy. So I consider myself a scholar activist engaged in higher education, the nonprofit world, and also now philanthropy, all working towards creating a just regenerative future for all life. Thank you. That was great. Dana, can we hear from you? Sure. I'm so grateful to be here with you too. My name is Dana Baumeister. I have a couple of hats in the world of biomimicry where I've been practicing for more than 25 years. I am a professor of practice at Arizona State University and a co-director of the Biomimicry Center along with Sara. And I teach a lot of um, classes in biomimicry, run the graduate program. But I'm also partner and co-founder of Biomimicry 3.8, and that's the practice part where we are bringing biomimicry to the world through our work in consulting practice, through professional training, through some thought leadership, through speaking, and just about everywhere else, it seems, over the years. So I, I do both of those things, and I'm really excited to be here exploring this topic, which is been on my mind for 25 years, and I'm just so excited to, to unpack it at a deeper level. Thank you, Dana. And since we are trying to essentially talk about nature and our connection to nature, I thought it would be opportune to listen a little bit from your perspective and have the listeners hear a favorite organism or a place that you connect with and tell us a little bit more about yourself through it. So I'm most at home with a swimsuit on in a coral reef. And I prefer if I had gills over lungs and could spend all of my time in that incredibly diverse ecosystem. I love octopi in particular, so I'm always hoping that one will grace my path. But I originally studied marine biology, tropical marine biology, and just solely for the excuse to have to be in the water all the time. And that's one of my favorite ecosystems in the world. It's so rich with mutualisms, cooperative interactions, and it's otherworldly, right? It's so different than what we experience in our daily lives. So that's deep in my soul and it's one of my happy places. I'm also blessed to have a real connection to that space. I love the coral reefs too. I come from Egypt and have spent many hours and days on Egyptian coral reefs, and it really is a special place. 
That's great. And Melissa, you tell us, where's your special place? So, gosh, I have so many favorite organisms and places. And Dana, hearing you talk about the ocean and diving with the aquatic life, it's just another world. It's so beautiful. But I'm a very terrestrial, earth-based, land-based being. I love rivers and oceans, but I really love the rooted ones. So I would have to say the redwood tree. I was very fortunate to grow up in the coastal redwood belt of um, Mendocino County and just their enormity, even though they're not the biggest, they're the tallest trees in the world. They're reaching for the sky, their incredible roots, their persistence, Sequoia simpervirens, ever living. They persist through fires and floods and so much disturbance. And even after the horrible clear cutting, of the 80s, the whole timber industry, you just see these little sprouts come up and second growth, third growth, fourth growth redwoods, they just keep going. So they're such teachers of persistence and beauty and strength and reaching for the sky and they're spiraling like the galaxies and can persist in great winds through that incredible curve and I love the North Coast and the redwood trees, and they've been inspiring ecosystems and organisms for me. Like I said, even though they've been cut 97%, the 3% that persist are so resilient and strong and beautiful. I love that. I remember a story about redwoods that have sat with me for a very long time, and that is that I understand that they contribute back to the ecosystem for five times the length of time that they were standing beings. So incredible. And it makes me think a lot about, like, how how could the work that I try to do in the world have a legacy, a long leg, of positivity that is five times as long as I get to walk here. It, it, it's, it's pretty profound to think about that. Absolutely. Yeah, talk about giving back and returning the gift, as Robin Wall Kimmerer says. How do we return the gift of life with all of the oxygen and carbon? And I mean, we could get molecular on all of that, or we could just look at the beauty and awe that it creates for humans who walk through redwood forests for the first time. And they're not called cathedrals for nothing, just the inspiration and the habitats that they create for so many. The Native Seed Pod is produced by the Cultural Conservancy with generous support by Tamalpais Trust. Contribute to our polyculture, and to find out more information, please visit us at nativeseedpod.org or nativeland.org.
We would like to thank all of our guests for the wonderful conversations in this special five-part series, Knowledge Symbiosis, Can Biomimicry and Indigenous Science Harmonize? Through these conversations, we invite listeners to explore with us sustainable and regenerative design, creating conditions conducive to life, weaving relations, the ethics of science and technology, honorable harvest, and so much more. So let's start diving into to our topic. So I'm going to ask first you, Melissa. To first define and characterize what indigenous knowledge systems and TEK mean to you, and what do you know about the field of biomimicry? Excellent. Yes, so the field, my goodness, of indigenous knowledge systems and traditional ecological knowledge and its relationship, or my understanding of biomimicry. So indigenous people since time immemorial, the beginning of time, according to our creation stories, and of course, anthropologists or linguists, historians may have a different timeline for the peopling of the world and where that came from one place or multiple places. But there's no doubt that indigenous peoples settled in certain homelands and ecosystems for thousands of years. Uh, here in North America, Turtle Island, we have evidence 10 to 18,000 years throughout the Americas. Other parts of the world, 10 to 40 to 80,000 years. So people always migrated, moved around, but people also settled and really got connected to local ecosystems and adapted and co-evolved with habitats and watersheds and food sheds and migrated with great animals, whether it was the herding communities up in the Arctic with the caribou or the bison, the buffalo of our Americas. People followed the whales, for example, the Pacific Islanders and their migrations in the canoes. Indigenous peoples, like all peoples, have been on the move and migrate, but also settle and connect and belong. And we have many stories in our creation stories that talk about our origins and talk about our sense of place. And over multi-generations of living in certain homelands, we develop observations, just like all people, and very careful observations of the movement of the sun and the stars and the rains and the monsoons or whatever the cycle may be, and the seeds and the plants and what's good medicine and what's good food and what's a poison that can kill you and what makes a good home, and what makes a good cradleboard. So culture, cultural diversity emerges out of biological diversity, to put it in scientific terms. And indigenous peoples have stories, our original instructions that tell us how to be a good human being and to live in these local ecosystems. So my Anishinaabe people, for example, ancestors, were really great lakes people. So we are lake people and woodland people, but we also migrated. My band got moved more out into the prairie up in the upper Midwest and adopted more of the Lakota and other plains tribes with the teepee and bison hunting. 
So in the Southwest, we see more settled folks with the beautiful Pueblos and the earth people who really developed complex agriculture and living in particular places. So the point is indigenous knowledge systems have adapted and evolved in response and relationship to their local ecosystems over thousands of years. And we have indigenous sciences or indigenous knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge that builds up multi-generationally that is encoded in stories and they talk about these observations and also making mistakes, maybe over consuming a resource, maybe getting poisoned by a plant that looks very much like a food, maybe traveling into the mountains in the wrong time of year and getting buried in a snowstorm because they didn't listen to the signs of the cloud beings and the thunder beings. Our stories are often considered folklore or quaint little stories by ethnographers and anthropologists. But if you actually look at the full depth of them in their indigenous languages, there's layers and layers of meaning about careful observations of insects and pollinators and soil types, etc. So this is this whole massive body of indigenous knowledge systems and TEK specifically about ecological systems. And and they're all different because a desert person's going to be different from a rainforest person who's going to be different from an Arctic person or a savanna or a prairie person. So it's very hard to come up with one definition of TEK or indigenous knowledge systems because as Roramari ethnobiologist Enrique Samon always says, indigenous knowledge is local knowledge. And yet, based on that local knowledge, we have principles and practices of interaction, again, encoded in values, what we would even call environmental ethics. How do we relate to plants and animals, whether it's in a California coast or a Montana mountain or an Arizona desert? There are certain principles and practices and ethics for those interactions. So TEK or indigenous knowledge systems really encompasses all of that, those observations of the land, the environment, the ecosystems, but also the observations with how we as humans live in these places. So there's not really as much of a separation between humans and nature, because we are obviously part of nature. We've evolved with nature. We are living organisms. And it's exciting to see that knowledge is finally being respected and elevated in many different arenas today, from policy to science to universities. Certainly the activist world has been a part of this for a long time. And so I've been a part of the Bioneers movement, the early days of the Collective Heritage Institute, was on the board for many years with Kenny and Nina and many others, John Mohawk and Oren Lyons, some really major Native American leaders. And early on, we started hearing from Janine Benyus and Dana and learning about this emerging field of biomimicry. And I saw that it was being led by these brilliant, dynamic women scientists who in my estimation, worth humanizing science. 
taking it out of the cold laboratory of the white male gaze of nature and actually wanting to renew the relationship with nature by seeing nature as teacher, the natural world as teacher, and creating more of a kinship relationship with the natural systems we're studying rather than a cold, observational, dissecting, interrogating. And so I've been very curious and very excited about the work of Janine and Dana and others who've been forging this new field. And I see lots of hope for innovation with design and technology and truly creating better systems. And I think many of us have had side conversations like, wow, you guys are really getting at like these ethics and these values with these operating principles that have a lot of resonance and synergy with the way my tribe or this tribe or our tribes think about how we learn from nature, that it's ultimately the great source of knowledge, whether we call it evolution or the great mystery or creator or Mother Earth. There's something more powerful than humans and more intelligent than humans. And humans can harmonize with that intelligence. And I think that's the promise of biomimicry. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Beautiful. I'm just sitting here mesmerized listening. Uh, And yeah, gosh, where to start? Yes, yes, and yes. And what I love about what you said is I've I've always had a problem with boxes and you're either with us or against us. You're one of these or you're one of those, Mm -hmm. like all this categorization. And in, in my view, I think about the really long view of humans, 300,000 years that we've existed as a species on the planet. And we've tried out a little bit what you said, different cultural variations, right? And and even today, there's thousands of different cultural variations for our species on the planet. And so when I think of that long view, like over time, and then the wide view over space and time, what I find really reassuring is we've often talked about biomimicry as being an emerging discipline of an ancient practice and really recognizing that. And I should say ancient practice in the sense that we've been doing it for a long time and it is still ongoing, especially as you're well aware in many indigenous tribes around the world. It's not like we used to do that. It's still present. And so in in a way, I almost think I should update my definition is, it seems cheesy, but biomimicry is TEK for a white industrialized world. Like it it makes it accessible so they can walk in the door. I Um, love that. I love that. And yeah, it's in that realm. That's why there's such a strong inclination of like, oh, there's, there's something in this space to explore. And what does that look like in a way that is as inclusive and honoring as possible? And it's one of the things I've most appreciated about biomimicry is I have, I can create an invitation for anyone, no matter what their perspective is to walk in the door and at least begin to see what could be possible. In biomimicry, we talk about three essential elements, one of which is the emulate. That is the designs, the innovations, and so on. And so you can get a CEO, you can get a designer or an engineer that has no connection with nature, but is, wow, cool, innovation, I'll take it. They'll walk in the door, 
But once you walk through that door, you can't but see, you can't but fall in love and be in awe of the termite, the fungi, the octopus, whatever it is that you're learning from, right? So you begin to cultivate a relationship. Another element is the reconnect piece. And that's what I think you're talking about a little bit of humanizing science is I know scientists that they might know the genetic sequence of the organism they're studying, but they can't identify it in a field. Aerodopsis, do they even know that it's a plant, right? You know, I mean, it's, it's well studied. Do they know where Aerodopsis grows? Do they know what it looks like? Do they know how it survives the winter? And so that reconnect piece has the element of reconnecting with the more than human and also recognizing that we too are nature. Right? There's this crazy dichotomy that much of the Western industrialized world has set up for themselves that we're separate from. There's nature and there's us. Um, and it's even hard in the English language to talk about nature in a way that doesn't imply there's a separation. We have a class in our program called the Human Nature Connection. Isn't that redundant? Shouldn't it be nature, <laughs> nature connection or human, human nature? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, so you can't, you can't even get at it with language. And then the last one is the ethos. You touched on that as well. What are the guidelines and the practices for how we're teachers, how we're respectful teachers, how are we reciprocating? How are we giving thanks? And in that ethos component, one thing that I think is interesting, and as you were talking about the very locally attuned perspectives of TEK, the quote that you said, indigenous knowledge is local knowledge. And what's interesting about biomimicry is it's it can be both local, especially for any place-based designs, right? You wouldn't want to learn how to design a building for the Sonoran Desert by going and checking out polar bears. Like that just, that, that wouldn't work. But there's also some universal lessons, like maybe part of what being in the 21st century offers us is the ability to look across all of these local pieces. And and that's where I think there's a lot of richness to explore. If you were to take the guiding principles, and I know that some of this work has been done across multiple tribes and even globally, what do they all hold in common, right? And because what we've done from a biological perspective is develop the life's principles. What do all of the organisms have in common, right? And we've come up with 26 life's principles. What does it mean to be a good species? Um, And as I like to say, not get voted off the planet, because I'm pretty (laughs) sure if there was a council by the more than humans, they would be like, "Mm, I'm not so sure we want those ones to stay, or a good (laughs) chunk of them have got to go. So I think We have to figure this out. We have to figure out how to do this. Wow, so many great nuggets there. And actually, it uh, brings me to the next question, and you've kind of alluded to it, both of you, but I'm really curious to understand from you, when we say nature, what does that mean to you? How do you see it, and how do you explain it to your audience from your perspective? I might start only because I think I have a, a maybe a more narrow definition than you, Melissa, so you can expand on it. For the purposes of biomimicry, in the sense of learning best practices and learning lessons, we do rely on the notion of natural selection. And natural selection acts on what is denoted as living beings, right? Those that um, can grow, reproduce, 
And, and if you don't have that, that DNA to pass on, so classic evolutionary pieces and that, but of course those organisms, those living beings are not separate from the context, right? Their strategies for well-living are in relationship to the context that they're in, the environment, the soil that they're rooted in, the waters that they travel in, whatever it might be. Those go hand in hand, but we shy away from talking about what I would call maybe the abiotic. It's part of nature in the larger context, but when we talk about learning from nature, it's learning from living organisms in their context, as opposed to learning from rivers or learning from volcanoes. And part of the reason for that is we kind of already do that. Like we do heat, beat and treat. Like we, we do the volcano thing and it's not serving us very well. And maybe there's a whole level of just understanding that we still have to get at, you know, in Western science. But my sense is as a living being ourselves, we've got to learn how to be better behaved living beings And therefore, we should learn from other living beings how they've learned how to live here. And so nature, of course, includes all of that. But for the perspective of learning from nature, as we say in biomimicry, we're talking about learning from other living beings. Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Yes. And as also a, a trained biologist, I really love the emphasis on those squishy living beings that we can really relate to because they're some of our closest kin and many of our native stories, my Ojibwe stories, we have stories of marrying bears and marrying beavers and hummingbirds. And so we have stories of when humans had bear skin and then took off the bear skin and evolved or even went underground and underwater and were with the fish people. And so uh, I agree that the focus on what we classically call living beings of the natural world, plants and animals and fungi, the kingdoms, is a good way to think of nature. But I think it's also from, I would say, my own Ojibwe perspective, and I think learning a lot from other indigenous perspectives when we talk about nature, we do talk about rivers and volcanoes and mountains and rocks. And what brings up the whole grammar of animacy, again, that Robin Wall Kimmerer writes about, that in our languages, rocks are animate. They're not inanimate. So there's different types of classifications besides our Linnaean classification of the order of, quote, life. So when you talk about nature, you have to talk about life. And then when we talk about life, we also talk about spirit, which really loses Western science. But from indigenous sciences, for us, those are all very deeply related. And then there is human nature. And we the English language is very difficult in talking about like I said, non-human nature, abiotic nature, biotic nature, and also really wanting to understand that we are made up of organisms. So nature means multiple nested organisms, right? And then you look at cellularly, then you look down at the core of blood, and then there's iron. So then iron is a mineral, but is 
that a living thing, but minerals come from the earth and minerals come from the stars. And we get rained on by stardust every day that we incorporate into our cells that as a living organism. So the point is, it's pretty complex. And I love that even the poet Gary Snyder wrote a book once called No Nature. Do you remember that book? And he said, you cannot define nature. I mean, one of the great eco poets of the last century. And he just, said you cannot define nature because it's too complex and too mysterious and the human mind cannot grasp all of that. And yet we do have these classifications and we can reduce things to systems that we can study and learn from. And biomimicry, I think, is doing a really amazing and brilliant job at that. And so is native science. Our native sciences, though, are not rooted in just one evolutionary theory like Darwin's theory, but each nation, each indigenous group has our own definition of life that is really about all our relations. It's about our kinship networks, who we're related to. They're connected to the unseen world, our cosmological worldviews of a spirit world that are really hard to understand if you're not born or raised or have that sensibility. So I think there are still some profound differences in the way biomimics define nature and the way different indigenous peoples define nature that are rooted, again, in their ecosystems, the locality, their languages, their worldviews, and their cosmogenealogies, really their, their deepest values and spiritual beliefs of origins and what it means to be human human on the planet today. What does it mean to be a good species? Human on the planet today. Off the 
we have to come up with something that's workable that we can understand and define so that we can teach it and learn from it and create a better world with those understandings. But I would not make a distinction between human nature and nature or natural systems like watersheds or mountains or volcanoes. If we just learn from Hawaiians about power and feminine power from Pele, the volcano goddess, we would have a very different understanding of volcanoes and creating earth in the oceans. not been elevated as much as it could be, but we're having these conversations and I'm really excited about it. (laughs) 
And I want to come back to something you mentioned earlier and touched on here too about stories. I think one of the biggest flaws of industrialized Western science is its inability to tell stories, right? Its inability to take that information and convey it in a way that is compelling in a way that is even transformative or can even have information flow. It's like it gets written in a journal and then it's like a it's like there's a big brick wall that, that you just can't access it. And I think in it is in the storytelling and the lack thereof that becomes the undertone for how we behave in the world. And if we were to dissolve these lines, if we were to not have to think of nature as separate from humans or not human or human nature or this or waters and spirits and all of that, then we would probably behave a heck of a lot different, right? It's mm -hmm. easy to drill into the earth or crack a rock to find gold if it's not alive. It's, yeah, it's just a rock. It's just a mineral, That's right. right. It, That's it's right. easy to dismiss these things when we don't, when we see them further and further away from what we are, right? And you see it in the animal rights movement and everything right now, but starts with the things that most look like us, most act like us, and like why we draw an arbitrary line that it's fine for us to squish spiders, but we're not gonna squish chimpanzees. It's just, it's, it's crazy. So I think there's a lot of unpacking and work to be done in our world, even if we can get my thought out, but if we change the story, we change everything. Like stories are the root of it all. Absolutely. And we're just listening to the wrong stories right now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, I think that's so important. And the machine model of nature, the reductionistic focus on just take this out, cut it up, put it back in, disassemble it, reassemble it, that fragmentation in thought and fragmentation of the living biotic and abiotic world of nature has been so destructive and has led to predatory capitalism and extractivism. And like you said, it's devoid of an ethic of care because it's othering nature that we see as less value or less like us. And then it's harnessing it for our exploitation, our use. And I see biomimicry as wanting to retell a new narrative. One thing that I feel and sense with everything I've read or heard from you and Janine and Toby and so many others is bringing back a reverence for nature, especially for settler colonial society that has been so consumed with extracting and separating and exploiting nature. And it has lost that reverence. And I think that's why we see so much uh, loneliness and depression and nature deficit disorder today because of that lack of reverence, which is something indigenous cultures we have persisted and sustained and against all odds, those original instructions.
reverence, whether it's an octopus or a jellyfish or a redwood tree or a coyote, like really looking at almost the mythical beauty and the metaphoric beauty of these animals, as well as their very honed in life cycle and adaptation and habitat niche specialization and all the ecological relevance of these organisms, but wanting to also tell the beauty and the mystery for these organisms that we have the privilege to even learn from. would not have been possible without the generous support of the Institute of Humanities Research at Arizona State University, the School of Sustainability at ASU, the Biomimicry Center at ASU, the Cultural Conservancy Native Seed Pod, Global Futures, Indigenous Knowledge's Focal Area at ASU, the School for Complex Adaptive Systems at ASU, Biomimicry 3.8, the Learning from Nature podcast. And this podcast was hosted, written, and directed by Sara El Said, Lily Ehrman, and myself, Melissa K. Nelson of Anishinaabe and Metis Heritage. And this podcast would not have been possible without the amazing teamwork of the Cultural Conservancy's Native Seed Pod. We thank the producers, Mateo Inojosa, Mestizo Quechua, and Sarah Moncada, Yaki. We thank the co-producer, Raven Marshall, Dakota Lakota. Audio engineer, music and soundscaping provided by Colin Farish and partnership coordination by Alexis Stanley of the Diné, Akama and Honduran peoples. Thanks also for they all contribute to these conversations, this work and our lives. To the soil, microorganisms, food forests, seeds, ocean coral, redwood trees, rocks, rivers, birds, stars, people, places, and all of our kin. Chimikwich, we thank you so much for listening to our podcast. Shukran. Thank you.